Miles, hello, my friend. How are you? Week 14 has found us. It finds me in Southern California. Where does it find you today? Tristan, it finds me in Portland, Oregon. Um, Tristan, I've got an email from you here saying you have to learn the rules of rugby. This is a Seattle Seabulls podcast now. We're leaving the Seahawks. And I was a little curious. I I stayed up very late uh, learning the rules of rugby, uh, how you score, etc. But you said Seahawks are over. This is the world's only Seabulls podcast now. And we didn't really get a chance to talk about it till today. Um, yeah, I, I was either hacked. My email account was either hacked or... Um... It might have been that I was in a drunken rage when I sent that email. I don't know which one it was. It could have been either way. Um, but go ahead and just scrap that. We'll, we'll stick with the Seahawks. Um, Are you sure? We, I was spending a lot of time learning the rules of rugby. I'm not sure. I, I heard the Seahawks played this weekend. How did that go? Um, well, first of all, my impression is it's basically the exact same game. So if you know the rules of, of, of uh, football, you, you know the rules of rugby. And it's also, it's basically the same as, as, as football as well. It really doesn't make any difference. So, you know, it, it's all played on grass, right? Um, you got four quarters, just like all, you know, all of these sports have four quarters. Except um, foot, football, but. Sure, but, but I mean. Can, but, they they kind of. There's there's a moment where they kind of take a little deep breath in the middle there. I think they yeah. they, they play on. I my understanding is more natural grass than we do. Although I believe I don't believe I know that um, Levi's Stadium is an all natural grass stadium. So happy um, for all the ACLs and the MCLs. I think that's the real winner of this game is everyone's ACL and MCLs and, and meniscus. And all those little joints and, and and whatnot that can get hurt potentially when you play on field turf. So, um, so yeah, that's the real winner. There was a game. I'm really sorry to report, though, Miles. That I think we could just copy and paste from uh, two weeks ago when we did this podcast because although the game looked a bit different than on Thanksgiving, unfortunately, the same result. A Seahawks loss at the hands of the evil 49ers as they collect their gold, as they um, really are focused on just gold collection during the week. During the weekends, they're focused on beating the Seahawks, and and they did it again. It it wasn't a pretty game. Although I'll say this, and I want to get your thoughts on it. I want to know what your mood was watching this game. My mood actually wasn't that bad. And now it could be. Let me set a picture for you. It could be that I went on a run right before the game. So I got back from my run. I had my hot tub going. I got in the hot tub. I'm being totally serious. And I watched the first half from the hot tub with my daughter. And I think maybe that just put me in a better headspace in general to realize, hey, you know what? It's just a football game. Um, you know, uh, kind of a weird, kind of a weird deal, I guess, to 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 watch a game in that way. But um, I, I have to say, I feel as though we, this is a, a real dumb thing for me to say. We were in it until we weren't, if that makes sense. You know, like th- there was a, a vibe throughout the game of like, hey, like we can fight with these guys. Like we're, we, we're stopping the run, you know, like we're, we're doing okay. And then it just kind of felt like once they got all of their ducks in a row, it it wasn't like we were on a different a different plane than they were. So I, I don't know. What was your vibe? How did you feel throughout this game? Well, I like the thought that you prepared to watch this game in perhaps a similar way that a player would prepare to play in the game. You know, good nutrition, light workout, keeping the body fresh. Yep. Uh, they're just kind of going out there. <laughs> but uh, I like I like that level of preparation. Um, I, I pulled the Tristan this week. I, I watched the game condensed. Uh, after it concluded, because I didn't really, this is one of the ones I didn't know how to feel. You get the announcement 90 minutes ahead of time that Drew Locke is going to be starting. That doesn't feel great. It's already a 12 point spread. But then, hey, as you said, this was a very competitive game. And it was, it, it was like, oh, okay, great. But then uh, I guess on the replay, I felt like there's a lot of, I feel like there's so much talent on the Seahawks that isn't 
isn't quite being maximized. I guess, so I guess it ended up being a little more uh, frustrating. I agree with that, man. Yeah, th- that seems to be um, that seems to be something I'm hearing from a lot of different shows and podcasts out there. Um, Twitter Nation seems to be kind of in the same boat. Uh, you know, the, the 12s on Twitter seem to be talking in the same way about um, that that we, we seem to be underutilizing talent. And I, I don't really know what to make of that um, because on the surface, I feel like we have a pretty good coaching staff. I like Pete. I, I believe in the kind of coaches he would bring together. But I agree. It, it seems as though we're not maxing out um, the talent that we have, which, yeah, which is a frustrating deal. Uh, before we get to that, though, I know that the listeners of the World's Only Seahawks podcast were really waiting with bated breath. And I know you're excited that I'm going to bring this up as, as well. You you were, I heard you were losing sleep over the week about this because uh, last week we saw the fifth game in NFL history with no punts between either team. And I mentioned offhand, Oh, I think I just saw what the record was for the most punts in an NFL game. I think it's 27. And I really, I really whiffle waffled. But let me take you back to October 1998. Ryan Leaf and the San Diego Chargers go into Oakland to play a football game. There were indeed 27 punts in that game and five turnovers additionally. So 32 total. Uh, no, and the Raiders won it seven to six in the end on a last second touchdown. The Raiders weren't a bad team that year. They finished 8-8. Eight and eight. But uh, yeah, 27 punts and 17 first downs total in the game. So that's a lot. <laughs> that's, that's way more punts than first downs. We also just saw this week a game the Vikings beat now the Las Vegas Raiders 3 to nothing. a game uh, reminiscent of yesteryear. And I was curious. That the, and also, what's crazy about that game is it had a very big impact on the Seahawks and their playoff hopes with the the Vikings inching above uh now 7 and 6 thanks to winning 3 to 0. So 3 to 0, surely that game would threaten the record for the most punts in a game, right? And the answer is no, not even close. There was 17 punts, which don't get me wrong, that's a ton. But you're still you're still 10 punts away. From uh, from getting from, to the like all, all like from glory, yeah. That uh, that ten punts is a lot of punts. There were eleven total in the Seahawks 49ers game. So you got to kind of combo these two games up just to get to the record. So I'm glad to have that settled. As uh, <laughs> I was, I was correct. Twenty seven punts. It's it's hard to believe, but uh, now we're definitely on track with this conversation about the Seahawks and the Niners that I've uh, addressed that issue. Well, you know, Miles, you only have one reputation. You know, you only have one uh, one name, right? Your entire life. You only get you only get one name. So the fact that, you know, you were just putting yourself in a position of um, uprightedness and saying, hey, you know, I, I'm going to make sure that um, I set the record straight, I think is admirable. Um, I think I speak for the entire audience when I say thank you. You know, just thank you for doing the right thing. That was huge. And to the audience and to you, I say thank you for sticking with me, even though I think I waffled between 24 punts or 27 punts. 27 was the more unlikely number, if we're being honest. And what a delight, you know, both for my reputation and for the viewers of that game that uh, it was indeed 27 punts. Setting the record straight that you did not do anything wrong is always, it's a very, it's a nuanced take. Um, You're real, I, yeah. We probably wouldn't have gotten this update if it was 24 punts. Might have just slid right past it. And, but I know the chatter online would have, it would have gone from a chatter to a deafening roar. So there we go. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, um, yeah, th- there's always that. I just used the cough button for the first time and it really, save the podcast just now. So I, I just wanted to call that out, even though I didn't cough. Um, as far as the audience is concerned, I use this magical thing called the cough button. That was pretty great. I was impressed. I don't know where the cough button is. That's maybe something we can address later, mm. unless a cough happens to be in the middle here, but I was impressed by it. Well, thank you. Um, so, you know, like we were talking about big picture, I felt like this was an entertaining game. Um, it was a fun game to watch. I bet it was one of those games. Again, if you're watching it nationally, 
it was a fun game. I feel like a, an absolute loser saying this, but I mention it to say that it 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 wasn't it wasn't the blowout Thursday was, and it looked like we actually belonged on the field with this team, which was an upgrade from Thursday. So I, I think in some really sad way that made me feel much better. Like, hey, at least we were able to generally stay on the field with this 49ers team. They're clearly more talented. You know, they just are. Um, something that got me excited, though, going into the week was the idea. You know, we, we've we've had a lot of consternation about this idea that, well, we got to face the Niners and the Cowboys, right? And then uh, then the Niners again. And now, you know, coming going to the Eagles and the Eagles coming to us. Well, you know, this is such a tough gauntlet. And it occurred to me this week and something that got me excited about this game and this matchup. If we're saying we want the Seahawks to be a playoff team, right? If that's the whole point, hey, get get into the playoffs, have enough wins to get into the playoffs you're going to have to play these teams when you're in the playoffs. So if you can't beat them now, what's the point of getting to the playoffs just to get your your doors blown off in week one of the playoffs, i.e. I'm kind of like last year. Um, and so that, that kind of got me excited. And that is what's going to get me excited going into this Eagles matchup. You know, like it, it's not so much about, man, this is such a great team. It's such a hard uh, game. I wish we would have won the Rams game. That's all still true. But at the end of the day, these are the teams that we're saying we want to play in the playoffs. So if we want to play them in the playoffs, why don't we want to play them in the regular season? I don't know if that makes any sense, but I'm kind of I'm kind of changing my tune a little bit about this gauntlet and saying like, yeah, if we can't win now, we, we're not going to win in the playoffs. So let's go. And, you know, I think that they played well enough. We'll get into some of the details of this game. But I can see the glimmer of hope of of where this team's trying to get to. You also see the frustration level rising. Um, but yeah, I mean, if we if we if we want to play all these guys in the playoffs, it starts today. It starts now in the regular season. So I say, bring on Philly. Let's go. I love to hear that about the gauntlet. That that's a great approach. Uh, here was I my opinion about the gauntlet changed yesterday for a different reason, though. Uh, I'm going to do a little bit of one-on-one podcasting and shout out my friend Cole. We were watching a game and I mentioned, you know, I think this run the Seahawks are on this month, it's harder than what the the team that wins the Super Bowl is going to have to do this year in the playoffs. I just threw it out there, but then I took a look and it was I was actually correct. If you look last year, we had the Chiefs and the Eagles in the Super Bowl. Chiefs start out their playoff. They get both teams get the first round bye. That's an easy game to win. That's much easier to win, for sure. Uh, Even ignoring that, though, first week of playing the playoffs, the Chiefs faced the Jaguars, who went 9-8 and in the regular season, and Eagles faced the Giants, who went 9-7-1 and in the regular season. That's an easier... That's that's less wins in the regular... You know, uh, the Niners already have 10 wins, Cowboys have 10 wins, Eagles have 10 wins, you know, and we got a month left after this. So, So really... Uh, I, my, uh, my crazy thought was actually had a lot of truth to it, that, that this is actually harder than, than the playoffs really. It's, so it's I, a, I guess we're on the same page. I, I was more, I was, I was shocked to see how correct I was just throwing that out there. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point And it's a good level set. I think we're both trying to level set what our eyes are seeing and trying to reconcile. Right. And, and we're looking at it from slightly different lenses, but um, no, I, I think it I think it makes a lot of sense. One one other thought on this game that I want to talk to you about was I, I want to talk to you about the emotion you saw in this game from the Seahawks from start to finish. I what I felt and tell me if you felt the same way. What I felt was as this game progressed, we had them in the beginning. It felt like we could play with them. They started breaking away from us and they started making some of those big chunk plays, right? And they started really converting. And and as it got farther away, I felt as though I could feel the character of the team, the composure of the team um, start dwindling. And, and obviously the big fight in the middle is a great example of kind of that falling apart. But did you feel that the way I did? It, it just felt as though as the game got farther away from them, instead of just outplaying the other team, like our guys kind of started getting desperate and you could almost just feel like the chinks in the armor 
Um, it was an, it's an unfamiliar place as a Seahawks fan to see over the last 10 years, but that's what it felt like to me. What, what was, what did you feel like the emotion of the, of the Seahawks was from quarter one to, you know, to quarter four? I guess I felt a little bit differently. I think uh, we, we are, we would be mistaken to not give Drew Locke a tip of our cap. hundred I mean, percent. To come in cold after, after almost two years since his last start against the hottest team in the league in their home stadium and, and to play a game that that made it possible to win yeah. entering quarter four is, I mean, I wonder how much money that made him. I mean, he, he will be a free agent in, in the spring. I mean, that's a valuable game for him. And I appreciate that the Seahawks have always gone top of the market with their backup quarterback. To me, it's like paying for car insurance. You can't evaluate like, well, I didn't use my car insurance this month, so it was wasted money. It's like, no, you need to have it. You really see teams scramble who go bottom of the market for their backup quarterback. I always think it's a great decision, even though the Hawks haven't had to do it for several years. I'm glad they keep on uh, with that approach, and it gave the Hawks a chance to win this game. So for me, you did see the team unravel. It was it was alarming. I forgot about this till I rewatched it to see Jackson Smith and Jigba get a little uh, personal extracurricular flag. He's he seems like such a quiet guy. You know, you, did, you didn't want to see that. Uh, I guess I wasn't bothered by it because it would be hard to stay. Okay, okay. I'm looking at I'm looking after the gauntlet, and I'm seeing Titans, Steelers, Cardinals, and I'm going that should be three and zero. But then I'm going this gauntlet was so hard. It might it might break the will a little bit to actually be able to get up and play to your your true potential for those three much more winnable games. Uh, so yeah, but but I uh, so yeah, I guess I wasn't too to get to your question. Was I concerned about the the thing unraveling? Not really, because I, I think there was a, a really high level of competitiveness during the competitive portion of the game. And it would be hard to do that. It would be hard to do that. You've, there's been a lot of losses lately. You're coming in with quarterback number two, but effort wasn't, and that competitive edge wasn't what lost the game. Yeah, yeah. I Man, I, I keep going back to that final play. Oh, not final play, but the play right before the fight where, um, you know, DK's on the ground. The dude shoves him in the back, right? Um uh, is it Greenlaw? No, it's um, where's my head right now? It, it's uh, Ronnie Lott. It's not Ronnie Lott. Um, who was it that shoved him from behind? Do you remember? Sorry for putting you on the spot. <laughs> this is how this is how unconcerned I was. I was, I was just kind of like, oh, some uh, kerfuffle. I guess. So so he gets shoved, and it, it, it's a really. <sighs> It's a really, really interesting like sequence of events where he gets shoved. He overreacts, like goes, grabs the guy's face mask. And you can see to me, this was such a telling thing. You could see as he's grabbing his face Fred mask. Warner. Fred, Fred Warner. Warner. Thank you. Thank you. As he's grabbing Fred's face mask, Fred isn't at all in his face. He isn't trying to fight back. It's like Fred. He, DK got played like Fred knew exactly what he was doing and he knew that the hothead was going to lose it. And like he, he baited DK into that. Like he knew what was coming. The second he shoved DK, DK's head in the ground and walked over him. He's like, and here we go. Like, and it's on. And I mean, he was probably bummed that his dumb teammate got another 15 yard penalty that offset the whole thing. But watching that sequence to me was so telling of like a team that has been there before and has composure versus the team that doesn't um, getting into Pete nuggets later. I, I have a little bit to talk about there. Cause I think it's an interesting thing, the young players and, and their role models on the team and how they understand what to do in those moments. Um, but that was a bummer to see. Cause I felt like that was who we used to be. We used to be the team that, um, we would bait other people into doing dumb things because we were kind of above it all. It's kind of like when you get in a, an argument with your spouse, there's moments when your anger just takes over and you just start saying dumb things. And there's other moments where you take a, a, a deep breath, you take a step back, you see it from their perspective and you can kind of, it's like the world slows down a little bit, you know, and you're like, 
oh no, I'm I'm above this fight. Like we can we can both just kind of rise above this fight. I see what's happening. This is silly. Why are we fighting about dinner tonight? Like this is okay. Um, it, it seems like that's what the Seahawks of old used to do. And that's what Fred Warner was doing in that moment. And to see DK just kind of like a childish, I mean, and he's been so great. He was so great in this game. Like he had so many great plays to see him just lose it. Um, it's, it's a real bummer. So anyway, that, that was kind of one of, one of my takeaways, I guess. And, and I, I think I have more to say about the emotional state of the team based off of, um, even, kind of all the news with Jamal Adams last week and and what a um, immature move that was on his part. It, it, it kind of makes me start wondering when you have a group of people, you need some adults. Like you can't just have a bunch of immature. Um, and I think immaturity is the exact word for it. Like if you have too many immature people on a team, eventually that's going to catch up to you. And I wonder if either immature because they're young or immature because they're foolish. If the Seahawks have just a few too many immature guys versus the maturity and the level headedness of a guy that's going to kind of bring everyone back. So sorry, that that might be a, a conversation for another part of the of the pod. I don't know, but um, I think there's something to get into there. No, it, it's a good point. Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of the flip side of of being the the rebuilding team. As I've the rebuilding team that's good enough to be in the playoff hunt, as I've mentioned, is yep, yeah, yeah. Th- this is part of it as well. So with with the new quarterback in, I thought it was uh, I there was an irony to the fact that even with with Drew Lock in instead of Geno Smith, there's still the same pattern of that first offensive drive is beautiful and it was this thing goes four minutes and 20 seconds 75 yards in for the touchdown and you you're thinking after because Niners score after one minute you're thinking uh oh it's on already that drive was huge and like I said Drew Locke coming in cold after two years huge drive but then it was the same issue as as happens with Gino which made me think it's not either of the quarterbacks it's it's something else that then the offense really struggles the rest of the game. So uh, across, so so during that, I know yards per minute of of possession is not really a common stat, but I I broke it down anyway. For that first drive, scoring the touchdown, Seahawks went 19 yards per minute, and then all other drives. So then for the other, they possessed the ball about 26 minutes the rest of the game. They get 249 yards for the rest of the game, only score nine other points for about nine yards a minute. Compared to the Niners, they went 18 yards a minute for the entire game. So there's so once again, we're seeing this huge drop-off between the Seahawks on their first drive, which is really beautiful. And I'm going to say how beautiful in just a second versus I, I don't know what happens in the rest of the game. And even trying to rewatch it, I was trying to look at like, well, what's happening Differently, I couldn't really like put my finger on anything, but there there really is something to this first drive thing. So, uh, this is the thirteenth game of the year. Seahawks on their first offensive drive, whether they're whether they're getting the ball very first or just or second, at, like in this game, they've scored nine times. Six of them are touchdowns. Wow. So that's a a forty six forty six percent of the time they're scoring a touchdown. The Miami Dolphins this year historic offense right their season-long touchdown percentage is 35 percent so when the defense should be freshest right the opposing defense should be really fresh they're not tired at all Seahawks are coming in and they're scoring 46 percent touchdowns when when the Dolphins have 35 percent like and I think that's I think that's maybe the frustrating part of this team that's happening enough times now it's not some sort of fluke you know they, they didn't find a busted coverage once or twice, you know, they're really doing it. Rest of their drives, all other drives, Seahawks scoring a touchdown 15% of the time. The New England the New England Patriots this year having a really tough offensive year, historically tough offensive year, they're at 12.7%. So there's something about the, I don't know what it is about just getting back on the sideline after that first drive, but the, the drop-off is so steep. I And I don't, I I couldn't believe it. There has to be something to this conversation we've been having over the last, I mean, this whole season about the game scripting and that 
yeah, whether it's that Shane is just a, like an unbelievable game scripter in the beginning and then as defenses adjust, something falls apart. There's certain, I mean, more than a pattern at this point, right? I mean, that that's pretty wild. Six touchdowns out of 13 opening drives. That's incredible. Yeah, so six touchdowns out of 13 opening drives. They have 130 other drives, and they've scored 20 touchdowns on those. Wow. So it's like, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, yeah, it's wild. Yeah, something's missing here. Now they have, I mean, this doesn't totally explain it because they've done it against these defenses. They have, again, this gauntlet, like they have faced the the best defenses in the league, starting with the Browns, right? So, I mean, we we have faced like these crazy good defenses, Browns, Ravens, 49ers twice, Cowboys, like all great defenses. And yet, though, like that would make sense if it just in general, we weren't scoring a lot of points against those teams. You scored tons of points against the Cowboys and you were able to get those opening drives, I think, you know, against these other teams. So it's it, it's perplexing, man. Yeah, it's it's as weird of a of a thing. And, and it's it's a very un Carroll thing. I'll say that as well. Um, during the whole Russell Wilson era we were very slow starters and great finishers. And so it's very strange to see us be like really strong starters and not good finishers. It's like, a, it's, I don't know. It's, it's a total flip of the personality of the team from an offensive perspective. That's a great point that it did. It was such, it, that was the whole Wilson thing coming back in the second half. Yeah. And, and I think that's why it's such a baffling team because it's like, I can't remember another team that had this issue. You know, Seahawks or otherwise. It's a very peculiar issue to have an absolutely scorching elite offense on your first drive. I mean, you would maybe think like, okay, maybe there's like a first half or second half thing or some sort of pattern. But in a, yeah, first drive versus all other drives. It's it's really wild. It's very, very strange. Huh. Well, I mean, all they can do is go up from here. It's it's a uh, it's a it's a tough deal. Um, another week, another first drive. That's it. We another first drive opportunity. Um, should I do some snap counts? Do absolutely, you have, absolutely. You have some other tidbits you want to get into before snap counts, or should I just get right into you it? You should do snap counts first, and then yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Well, then we'll get into snap counts. Snap counts are um, uh. Snap counts are brought to you by getting snapped like a frozen twig by the 49ers two weeks. Um, I guess I can't say two weeks in a row, but it feels like it. Um, we got snapped like a frozen twig. Um, have you ever done that, Miles? Have you ever been outside? It's cold, very cold outside, and there's a, a frail little twig, and you pick that twig up and you just snap it, and there's frost on the twig. Can, can you can you relate? Can you Can you feel the twig in your hands right now? I only snap branches. Okay, well. I'm just kidding. I actually uh, don't think I can picture that. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Um, I'll be on the lookout. Okay, yeah, and and this is the time of year. So if you have the opportunity, go ahead and do that. Um, Okay, we'll we'll make this kind of quick. Snap counts. Um, Anthony Bradford, you know, fan favorite here, uh, 100%, which is great to see. Um, Looked like he was moving it around on his side. It looked like he got out outmatched and outmanned a few times, but I, I can't tell you to be happy with what I'm seeing from Anthony. Um, JSN, 71%. Not a big impact game, it didn't seem like, for JSN. And and to your point, you could see him start getting frustrated out there a little bit. Um, Charbonnet, 42%. Um, good to have K9 back out there and to kind of get um, the flow of the two guys um, working together again. Um, Jake Bobo, another lower number, 17% for Bobo. So we're seeing... Less Bobo, not more Bobo over the last couple of weeks. Here's the number that made me happy, though. Derek Hall, 28%. So Derek Hall getting back in there, um, giving the other guys a rest, getting more experience. Um, Devin Witherspoon, obviously, out with a hip pointer injury. Um, only 13%, but that's you know kind of why. Or not kind of, that's exactly why. Cam Young, 7%. And then the the only other thing that I saw as I was looking at the snap counts, I just wanted to mention, you mentioned it before a little bit, time of possession in this game, which made this game even a little stranger, was just about even. We outpossessed them about a minute and a half. 
um, which I just think is kind of an, an interesting, weird, makes this game even kind of stranger to think about, you know, the, the back and forth nature of it, then they start blowing us out. But if you were to just look at time of possession, um, the Seahawks actually won that battle. So there's your snap counts. I don't know if any of those numbers particularly jump out to you or if uh, anything gives you a snap reaction. Oh, man. Tried. Uh, well, I think the Devin Witherspoon one was huge. That's, that's what I'm going to talk about in just a second. But uh, you would like to see more Bobo out there. I'm really curious what. Yeah. It's not like something happened. I don't yeah. Think. Yeah. He just, for whatever reason, he's not in the uh, in the game plan as much. Um, talk about Spoon a little bit, because I think that was a really, really big deal. I think it was, too. And I was a little disappointed. That it felt like the broadcast didn't really uh Kind of forgot it. about him. Yeah, I thought yeah, the same it thing. Was just, yeah. Um, so Devin Witherspoon playing the first uh, like seven to nine defensive snaps before he, he got this injury. And they showed him getting into the blue 10, and then he didn't return. And I think it was really crucial um, because it opened up. To me, here, here's what I saw on the replay. I saw... To me, it seemed like the 49ers really realized they had two big advantages on offense. One of them was left tackle Trent Williams going against anybody. He's an elite player. He's their highest paid player. They really leaned on him. I'll get to that in a second. But I think the other big advantage opened up after Witherspoon sat down. And then you had Brandon Ayuk versus Michael Jackson. And I think they really realized they could get the ball to Ayuk over the middle. Now, here's what I here's what I was really amazed at watching the 49ers is it felt like they realized both of these things and just kept them in their back pocket. And I think the important thing that Kyle Shanahan did was he was conscious that they had the matchup advantage. And he kept with it even though the result didn't always go his way. He was very conscious of, like, I still have this matchup advantage. And to me, it seems like they just played off of those two advantages for basically almost all of their their offense. Here's what I mean. Brock Party throws an interception in the first half. It is to Ayuk. There's a bit of a miscommunication. Ayuk has to lunge for the ball. He kind of slaps it up into the air, and Julian Love is able to pick it off. So, okay, interception from Purdy to Ayuk. Bad, right? Well, I think Shanahan realized, well, there's some sort of miscommunication there, and they figured out whoever it was. We we can't really know from outside the team who who was really miscommunicating there. But, but Shanahan still realized, hey, Ayuk was still open on that. We just had this miscommunication. We still are leading the matchup. And I noticed the very next possession – they go right back to Ayuk over the middle because like, hey, we still have this this matchup won. Um, it was the same thing with with Trent Williams. Uh, I was watching watching the game again and tracking with when McCaffrey went to the, the center or the right versus running to the left behind Williams. The Seahawks really bottled him up if he went to the center or the right. Like, like I don't, I couldn't find the numbers anywhere, but just trust. It, it was pretty unremarkable those runs he did. Every big run he had was uh, Trent Williams uh, to the left, and I thought they really took advantage of it on that huge George Kittle touchdown. Niners lined up in this formation that looks like a run to the left. Kittle's right next to Trent Williams, but it's a pass all the way. So here's here's the thing though is the Seahawks also had these types of matchup advantages. They just didn't take advantage of them, in my opinion. And and the big one to me was, and unfortunately we've talked about it before, but it it was the tight ends. And what I noticed was first play of the second half, Hawks get the kickoff to start the second half. First play is a target to Fant in the flat. And it gets tipped at the line. So, hey, bad result, right? Ball gets tipped incomplete. But no! No, it's it's they have the matchup advantage. The Niners weren't covering Fant very well, and this came up later in the third quarter. Beautiful tight end sequence. We got the twenty yard completion to Fant, and then the beautiful double fake, then the pass to Colby Parkinson. He runs it in from outside the red zone for a touchdown. Hey, that was two plays in a row where the tight ends were wide open. They went for explosive plays. Hawks had fifteen offensive snaps after that Parkinson touchdown. No targets to any tight end after that. So I was really impressed with what the Niners did, taking advantage of those those two little matchups. 
And I, I, I even felt like all of Debo, because Debo Samuel had more yards than Ayuk, but I almost felt like Samuel, he was getting his yards like playing off of that Ayuk matchup. It, it just felt like, man, when they're, when they're seeing an inch, they're taking the whole, the whole mile, you know? And, it, and that's the thing about the Seahawks. Even saying you want Bobo in the lineup more, it's like, well, there's enough players. It's not very obvious who you would take out to put Bobo in more. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really, there's, I think there are, there's a lot of talent and matchup advantages that the, that the Hawks have out there that they're not fully grabbing. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's, it's a good point too about Bobo. I mean, yeah, let's put Bobo in so we can do what, and who are we going to take out? Do we want to see less three tight end sets? Do we want to see less Charbonnet and, and Walker. Do we want to see less JSN and, yeah, and Lockett and or, DK yeah. and Lockett? Yeah. So to your point, I mean, it's a, it's a very strange um, kind of a, a, kind of a strange situation in that. Um, do you got any Pete nuggets? I got a Pete nugget. I got a tiny one. I got a, the littlest nugget. I thought it was they, cause this is his first four game losing streak. As a member of the Seahawks, I did anticipate this before the game, and I I wanted to look up some of the the recent long losing streaks in the in the life of Pete Carroll. Uh, when being interviewed by Mike Salk this morning, Salk asked him oh, if he you know encountered this before, and Pete did mention that. Oh yeah, I, I had a bad losing streak with the Jets. So uh, the most, but uh, so it's, I, I had I had looked that one up, but. Uh, the most recent four-game losing streak in Pete's career was in 2001, his first year at USC. He starts the year 1-0, and loses his next four. So we, so Pete Carroll took the year 2000 off coaching and after getting fired by the Patriots. And this is the year that famously he built his whole philosophy, right? His compete philosophy. He comes back to USC, a, a different a different coach, a different person, and he's the Pete we all know and love. He needed that time off. I didn't realize that the whole thing gets basically it gets started one and four. Like <laughs> it really, it, I'm sure that was a tough time because he's like, I just had this rebirth personally, this whole transformation in my philosophy, and I'm one and four. Uh, there was those were all one possession losses, and they recovered the year to go six and six. So you can see how they were kind of a hidden giant. Uh, you know, they had these one possession losses earlier in the year. And then every other year at USC after that was just like barely, but I don't know if he, you know, I don't know if he had three losses in a year after that, you know, anyway, also Pete did uh, kind of chuckle mentioning his time with the jets. He ended, he had, he was the coach of the jets in 94 only the one, the one year <laughs> he, he started six and five. And then he ended, he ended it on a five game losing streak going six and 10. Uh, that's the most recent five-game losing streak in Pete's career back in 1994, and hopefully the last. That's we, we hope. We hope we do not see a repeat, a repeat of that. Ah, uh, my Pete Nugget is a three-parter. Um, my, my first part is from from the press conference and also from the interview with Mike um, frustrated Pete is back, you know, in the beginning of the year, we heard frustrated Pete and it was kind of weird. It was like seeing the really happy dad be angry. And you're like, wait, I'm not, I don't quite know how to handle this. You know, my, my best friend's dad is always really cool when I come over and, and he's really angry right now. That's how it felt um, in the beginning of the season. And, and, and certainly that was the vibe from Pete again um, during, after the game. And then also uh, with, with uh, with Mike, um, just this overall frustration, and it, he it, the the messaging that he brought in both venues is that we have to make some changes, and he just kind of kept it at that. There's changes that have to be made, um, but whenever I mean, it's just kind of like if Pete's saying it, you know that it's going to be big. You know that he's really going to move some things around if he's saying it out loud. Um, yeah, so I, I'm very curious to see what that looks like from a personnel perspective. Um, I have to say that he was most frustrated by the big plays. You know, a, a, a cornerstone of a Pete Carroll offense is you always play the deepest. You never give up big plays over your head. 
that's kind of the one cardinal sin of a P Carroll of, of a P Carroll defenses is letting them score over your head. Um, and I have to say, you know, especially on the, on the broadcast with Mike, he calls out Jamal Adams. And if you watch, um, obviously the Debo Samuel plays the one that people are, are talking a lot about and, and Jamal getting torched. And I mean, it's crazy how deep Jamal was already back playing and, you can kind of tell from his defensive position, like he's not in a run support position whatsoever. Like his job is to be back. And the fact that he got beat so badly on that play is, is kind of unbelievable. Um, but the other play that again, I, I hate to, I hate to point fingers at Jamal, but he's kind of putting himself out there for it. Um, the first play of the game, there's a, a lot of guys that over pursued on that very first Christian McCaffrey touchdown. And, and that, that, Overpursued. There's no other way to say it. But Jamal Adams, who is supposed to be really good at run like defense, right? Like that's one of his calling cards. He he's always been bad in coverage. We've always known that. But Jamal is really, really good against the run and he and he can get to the quarterback. We've known that. Um, he completely gets washed. And I mean, he would have been, if not over pursuing in the exact same spot or the exact right spot to get Christian McCaffrey. To your point, you know, where'd they run that? Left side, right, with their beautiful giant left tackle, all of that. Um, but man, it, it was a, a good example. If I'm Jamal Adams, I'm looking at both of those plays and saying, this is on me, right? Like this is a, now the, the first play, certainly there are multiple guys that got washed there. It's not just on Jamal, but that being your calling card and not being able to to get that job done is is pretty rough. I, I don't know how his legs doing. I, I wanna don't want to be a jerk about it, but at the same time, um, man, you know, it, you give up two massive plays like that, and it's those are those are obviously game changers, right? They had four touchdowns in the game. Um, we had two touchdowns, right? So <laughs> you give up some of those monsters over your head or right by you, and 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 you're really you're, you're feeling it. So those explosive plays. Something that Pete mentioned that I thought was interesting, 23 explosive plays in the game, 11 for uh, the Seahawks and 12 for the 49ers. I've never heard him say that out loud before, like counting up the explosive plays. Interesting, though, that both teams had a lot of explosive plays against each other in this game. Um, ours didn't amount for the same things that theirs did, but um, still a, a lot of explosive plays Um but the last thing that I noticed from what Pete said, and maybe I should stop any comments before I get to my last thing, any comments on Jamal frustrated, Pete explosive plays. <laughs> Cause I, I do have, I guess like three nuggets uh, today. I love hearing. I love this triple nugget combo meal. So should I just keep going to the third or do you want to? Oh, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm head nodding with you. Uh, yeah, it, oh. it was, it was a bizarre game from Jamal in, in that way. It's been, it's been a tough few weeks for old Jamal. Been a tough, been a tough few weeks. Um, the last thing I'll say is, and I thought this was the most Pete of all the comments. He talked about during that fight how he could tell that the young guys were trying to figure out what to do. Right? You have so many young guys on your team. I'll use the word immaturity again, but not in the negative way. Just in literally your first year in the league type guys, second year in the league type guys, um, immature for all the right reasons, because they are literally young players. Um, but he talked about how he could sense a lot of them not knowing what the right thing was to do. It's like, okay, do I go out there and I have my buddies back, you know, and I get in a fight? Or do I just try to pull people off of each other? Like, what's the protocol? And I thought that was an interesting, of all of the things that's probably the most Pete like to notice, right? Like uh, he needs to talk to his young guys about when you're in the situation, this is what we want you to do. This is, here's the right way to defend and take care of your teammate, be there for your brother, but at the same time, don't get into trouble. So I just thought that was a really interesting Pete nugget because of course he's thinking about, Oh man, right now, this is what Witherspoon's thinking. Like he's, <laughs> this is what Charbonnet's going through in his head. Like, all right, so do I fight? I mean, you know, it, DK's angry, so should I be angry? You know, it's kind of interesting when you see Big Brother out there. You know, I was looking at the the list of free just free agents around the league this spring because it does seem like, and especially compared to the Super Bowl teams of 10 years ago, it feels like there are very few vocal leaders on the team. You got Bobby Wagner, and it's not that you don't have veterans. You got 
talented veterans everywhere, but they're more of the quiet types, I suppose. But then I was looking at it and maybe it's just different from the NBA. Maybe NBA, I don't know, the guys are out there. They're not behind their helmets. You have a sense for who the vocal like veteran leaders are, even if they aren't the best players. But NFL, it's like, Man, I, I don't know who any vocal, like, it was hard to point at any names to be like, oh, vocal leader, vocal leader there, vocal leader there, you know, that's that's a 12-year vet who will get everybody correct, like, it's it's a rare thing when it, it's, it felt like a rarer thing than I, I realized to just be like, oh, yeah, well, we you can go and get, uh, you know, veteran leadership, F- feels feels attainable, but it, it was hard to point at any names and be like, oh, yeah, this guy's known for being, you know, he'll lead the position group or something like that, but would be nice to have. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Didn't have the cough button that time. It's interesting uh, thinking about that from Seahawks past, right? Like, was there a time that I'm just not quite remembering where Cam Chancellor was just kind of an idiot and just kind of not thinking or behaving the right way and not knowing how to do stuff. I know there was kind of a time like that with Earl. Um, it's occurring to me that maybe Pete and John are really good at working with certain types of personalities and maybe not as good with others, you know, like you, you see the success of a cam chancellor and I mean it not from an on-field perspective, but just in, in how he handled himself, you see the success of a KJ Wright, a Bobby Wagner, um, you know, you see some of these characters that, have stuck around, stuck around for a while in that first version of the Seahawks. And then you see the guys that were just too much, right? The, the Percy Harvins of the world. And it makes you kind of think like, maybe, I don't know. And maybe that's just the case for every team. Like you can't have too many of those type of dudes on your team. Again, going back to that whole bounce thing, you have to have the right bounce of maturity and, and maybe just a little bit of immaturity so that, you know, those immature guys can be brought up with the mature guys. Um, I think they're in an interesting, weird spot, though, in that way. I really do. I think that this is a team that there's no easy, fast fix for that. You can't just suddenly get mature. And um, and look, I'll, I'll say it like, I mean, watching Jamal Adams make a fool of himself and 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 really I mean, calling out someone's wife is such a weird, gross thing to do. And the only word I have for that is immaturity. I mean, the only word I have for that, I don't think he's an evil, hateful person. I think that he is a really immature dude that doesn't know how to express himself and 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 think and work through problems. And so he did what my nine-year-old does. And I had to talk to her about it today. Like, your emotions completely got the best of you and you just went down this crazy emotional spiral instead of thinking with your brain and instead of taking the time to work through a, a problem like a like an adult. And I, I mean, it, it's a sad thing to see. I I think about all the time when I when I see athletes act like that, like what my dad would say to me if I ever did something like that as an adult. I'm, I'm almost 40 years old. And if I acted like that, if I called out someone's wife and said that she was ugly. And somehow that was like the way I got back at you. I can't imagine as a, as an, as a, a seasoned adult, my dad would be on the phone in two seconds being like, what, what are you doing? Like, what's wrong with you? Um, I mean, and, and he would be ashamed of me that that's the only way I can think about the way that Jamal is handling himself. I think about how people that love me, that know me, would act around me and my friends and family would be ashamed of me for that. And I would get called out by 20 different people. Um, I hope that at least one or two people's calling Jamal out because it's a really sad thing to see an adult act like that. So I don't know. I don't even know if that's what this podcast is for, but I, I just think it's, it's really sad. And I'll say as a lifelong Seahawks fan, it makes me ashamed to be a Seahawks fan. Honestly, like I, I just think it's really super gross. No, that's fair. I guess, so uh, we're referencing some Twitter drama. Twitter drama. Twitter drama. Was it? I guess I'm not sure uh, how big of a deal it was. It seems like it was a bigger deal than maybe I was thinking. I'm, I'm aware that it happened, but it, is this leading the conversation, would you say, on Twitter or elsewhere? A lot of conversations on Twitter. I don't know if it's leading the conversation. Um, I do know that when... 
I do know that the media, the sports media is really good at like having each other's back, right? So I mean, when something like this happens, you're going to hear about it from a lot of different sports media venues because they don't like this, right? Because and I wouldn't either. I do the same thing. Like, you don't want this kind of bad behavior just happening out there. Um, so you know, I don't know about leading the conversation. I, I certainly think it's been a conversation, though. And I, I know that our press asked him about it six days later, and he didn't he did not respond to our press the way that I would have hoped, which is with consternation and sadness and apologetic nature, you know, <laughs> which is what I was really hoping he would do. Um, I, he had a quote to our press that when they go low, I go lower, which is is just one of the like. Honestly, one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my entire life. I don't I don't even know how to think about a statement like that. When when they go low, I go lower. I would love to sit down and understand what volumes of wisdom you read to glean that beautiful sage piece of like did that come from Gandhi? Did that come from Jesus? Was that Muhammad? Like who who helped you understand grasshopper? Just remember when they go low, you go lower. Like it's, I don't know. I, and just, just to clarify, we're not talking about pa- pad level at the line of scrimmage, right? Because that's when you do, when they go low, you do want to go lower. It's possible but, that Jamal just got confused, that he was thinking the, the the reporter was asking about when 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 an offensive player is coming at you, what's the best way to stop them? And he was probably thinking, it was like, oh, well, if they go low, I go lower get them down on the ground and, and, you know, we move on, we, we play another game. So um, I honestly, sincerely hope that Jamal has someone in his life saying, Hey man, like this is, this is really gross. This is bad. Um, and, and only because, I mean, man, I, if he attacked the, uh, the reporter in a personal way, I think that would be great. If he said, well, you know what, you're an idiot and you're ugly. Like that's okay. It's immature, but it's like, okay, fair enough, whatever. Just the idea of taking it to that next, I mean, to Jamal's point, that next lower level of bringing in his wife into it is, you know, I I think Will Smith might have said it best when he said, get my wife's mouth or get my wife's mouth, get my wife's name out your mouth. Um, man, I wish I wish we could go back and edit it, folks. We're just not going to. We'll just let that play. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I think that's pretty, pretty easy advice to follow you know don't talk about other people's wives that's that seems like 101 to me i don't know so i anyway jamal's taken enough time um of this podcast i think i'm i'm very disappointed in him uh, i think this decade this century of football has taken enough time and i'm ready to go back to uh everybody's favorite segment the lombardi football hour continuing reading when pride still mattered by david marinus the biography of vince lombardi do you this uh so all right I'll just speak for myself. Personally, I know that there was football somewhere back there, kind of like caveman days and then there was the Super Bowl and then we kind of started rolling and I really didn't know what happened. Do you do you have a solid idea of what happened because I I got my head around it finally uh with with these these years of the Lombardi life and, and the NFL life. And, and I'm going to give an explanation personally. It's helped. It's helped me just putting this together of like, Oh gosh, I understand football history so much better now. Do you have a salt? Like, have you ever looked into it? Cause I'm, not I, really. I feel like, yeah, no, not really at all. I'm, I'm fascinated. Okay. Cause, cause I think this will help just putting this together has made me, I feel enlightened football wise. All right. So, we're gonna go. I'm gonna go through the years very, very quickly here. But professional football started in 1920. Uh, you had teams like the Columbus Panhandles, who we talked about uh, several weeks ago. The and it's uh, it's called the American Professional Football Association. It's named the NFL, National Football League, in 1922. They went soccer style. Best team, best record w- was the championship winner. They didn't have a playoff until 1932 when there was a tie at the top. They had a single-game playoff, and everybody was like, oh, this is great. So then they started scheduling the playoff the next year. I have to comment. Uh, it's, it's crazy that this happened. I know this is part of history at this point, but it's just so insane. It was a racially segregated league from 1934 to 1946. 
Now, Jackie Robinson came into baseball about 1946. We don't hear, I feel like that chapter is kind of glossed over football wise, but it's crazy that it happened. So, and during this time, there were a bunch of other leagues also competing with the NFL, just like other professional leagues. But by the 1950s, the NFL becomes the dominant thing. We had the Rams earning, you know, 90,000 fans uh, in their stadium. We had Lombardi starting with the Packers. These games were watched by millions and millions of people on a brand new invention called television. So by the 50s, the NFL is like dominant. And it's it's real football at that point, more real than I kind of realized. Like it's, you got coordinators, you got to sit, you know. Then what's so crazy is in 1960, there's a new league that starts called the AFL. And I think it's helpful if you start thinking about like, oh, what if this was like the XFL? <laughs> And the AFL was just simply the most popular other league to the point that players would get drafted by both leagues and they would face a decision about like, ah, do I sign with the NFL or do I sign with the AFL? And it's really funny to think about like, man, do I sign with the, do I sign with the Seattle Seahawks? Or do I, I don't even know the XFL team name, but it's like, it, it would be a real debate for, for these draft prospects for a few years. Then there became this agreement in 1966 that the leagues would start to merge together. So that's how that's not very much time for the AFL. Six years, they were that successful. So imagine if the XFL in like four years or whatever merges in with the NFL and all these teams fold in. And there's an agreement that they'll play a game after the championship games called the Super Bowl. So So the... The Packers beat the Cowboys in the NFL championship. And then when they go on to Super Bowl one against the Chiefs, it's viewed as a bit of a letdown because the NFL is like a far superior league. So it's almost like an exhibition game. They beat the Packers 34 to 27, and then they destroy the Chiefs 35 to 10. The same thing happens the next year uh, when the Packers win Super Bowl two. This time they're destroying the Raiders, and it's a blowout. So really, I think for me, this wasn't in the book, but this this is why Joe Namath is such a big deal. You hear about that, and you're kind of like, oh, okay, he said they would win, whatever. But that was Super Bowl three, Joe Namath and the New York Jets of the AFC, the AFL, were going up against the Baltimore Colts of the NFL. And Joe Namath before famously said, you know, I, I, they're like, uh, oh, the Colts were 18-point betting favorites. In Whoa. that game. So Whoa. huge. So jo- and then Joe Namath to say, hey, I-, I think we're gonna win that game. And the Jets come out and they do. Now, this is where uh it was a different era. Joe Namath leads them to victory. <laughs> the stat line 17 for 28, 206 yards. It's enough to it's enough to get the victory. Uh and I, I think that's what like uh creates I think that like created the viability of the NFL. Like, no, this isn't going to be just the the NFL team beating up on the AFL team each year. Like, hey, it it can happen. Uh, anyway, then they started for for the first several years. They just only met up in this Super Bowl game at the end. In 1970 was the first time they actually started playing conference games against one another during the regular season. And uh, you, there's been some weird NFL divisions over the years. So the plan for the NFL divisions, they realigned in 1970. They they had these five different plans, and they drew it out of a hat in the league office, which one of these five like divisional alignments we're going to go with. So that's how the Super Bowl happened. NFL kind of goes from like this semi-professional thing in the 20s to be extremely popular in the 50s, and then... Yeah, Al Davis and all the other uh, AFL teams just built this successful thing to the point that they like, and it made me think, how much more travel has that created for NFL teams over the years? Because you don't just have East and West. You have this. That's why you have this random like AFC NFC thing uh, because of these business agreements in the '60s. You know, and it still means that you know. Uh, the Seahawks don't go play the Raiders or the Chargers every year. You know, they anyway. So that's uh, that's how the Super Bowl happened, and that's why it was. So it's funny to think Super Bowl won, not not the most competitive game of the year, a kind of a almost an exhibition. 
It's cool to hear that because I've heard that quote from Joe Namath before, like we're, you know, I predict we're going to win or whatever. And I, you just like, oh, yeah, well, I mean, he's in the Super Bowl. So, of course, he believes he's going to win. Having the context that not only were they massive underdogs, but like that league in general was a massive underdog versus the NFC is pretty cool. Like that's that gives you just a lot more like, OK, yeah, th- this was a real um this was a real statement. Like he's that cocky of a guy actually. So that's, yeah, no, that's, that's really cool to hear. That's super fun. I wonder if the, and what would happen to the NFL and the, yeah, the Super Bowl in general today, if, if he doesn't win that game and it is kind of like, uh, well, okay, we're going to have this game. It's the Super Bowl, but it's, you know, the NFL team just destroys the AFL team every time. Like there's no way it would exist in its current format today. If, if they got still, still little brother. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's super interesting, man. That's cool. I like it. That's that's helpful. I it it's making me want to read this book even more because to to have a little context of how we got here is always interesting. So what was actually so Lombardi won five NFL championships, including two Super Bowls. Uh, his he he reti- he left. So I'll, I'll get to this next time. But he re- he resigned as the head coach of the Packers after 1967. The last two years are the first two years of the Super Bowl era. And yeah, he won five NFL championships in nine years going on and winning the Super Bowl exhibition game at the end of those last two years also. Interesting. What a, what a legend. I mean, what an absolute legend um, that figure is in, in NFL history. And so many of them. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to kind of hear other names that pop up as you're reading this book of, you know, guys that we hear the name, but we don't have context of who, who they were, or what impact they had in, on all of us. So that's pretty cool. Well, it's crazy to me. It only lasted nine years. And that is uh, wild. The Packers were, a, it's, it's a short amount of time in his life. Uh, it really was a lot happened in a very short amount of time. You know, Pete, this is year 14, right? In the middle of the 14th season. So yep. That's way longer than nine years. You know, it's not, it was not that, that long of a time. Yeah. Nine years, but a massive impact. That's wild. That's pretty cool. Um, Miles, we can close the book on the 49ers. Here's my promise to you. We'll never have to play them again this regular season. Okay. So don't worry about the Niners anymore. The gauntlet is over. We are bloodied. We are bruised, but we're out the other side. I wish I could say we stole some gold from them while we were down there in San Francisco, but we didn't. We couldn't find any. Um, They are very good at hiding their gold too, the 49ers. Now we move on. We go back to the hawk's nest and another bird is going to try to steal our eggs and land in our nest. And it's an eagle. How do you feel about Philly coming into town? Any, Any initial thoughts for this matchup coming up? This is a Monday night game, and it is interesting because I think this is the two of the two of the two teams who got off to excellent starts who are really both reeling right now. So they both really need this win. As crazy as it sounds, uh, the Hawks are in better shape than the Eagles, at least over the last two weeks, because the Eagles have gotten demolished each of the last two weeks, once by the 49ers and once by the Cowboys. Hawks had similar opponent. Sounds familiar. That's weird. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I thought I missed. I thought I said the wrong team for a second. But um, Hawks, you know, played the same opponents and and played them both close. You know, and it's instead of getting completely blown out. So this is a very interesting game. The Eagles, I guess, are fighting for playoff seating, but I I feel like it's more important to fight for your your playoff life. There's a little more on the line here for the Seahawks, and and yeah, even though um, I looked this up. Since the Leonard Williams trade, <laughs> oh man, the Welcome. Hawks are one and five, and the Giants are two and two, so and uh, kicking off on Monday Night Football momentarily, so they might even be three and two. Uh, despite that, it, you could argue the Hawks are in better shape than the Eagles, at least over the last ten days. Yeah, well, that's no that that is interesting. I. You know, I, I do feel a lot better about this matchup, obviously, than the 49ers matchup. Um, I am going to remain happy and confident 
with this thought, if we win this game and we win out the season against a winnable record, this team has the chance to get to 10 wins, which would be would be a nice little accomplishment after this gauntlet and how how dire everything felt, you know, if we could get to 10. So I'm holding out hope. Um, the, the, the 12s are going to be in full throat. We're going to be ready to go. I will not be, but the 12s, you know, with me in spirit, will be ready to go. Monday night football under the lights. Um, I'm, you know what? I'm going to get out of the prediction game again this week. I'm not going to give you a number, but I, I do think it's going to be another um, close game. And I think I think we figure out a way to win this one. I think that that angry Pete coming out is going to ruffle some feathers up in the old hawk's nest. And I think that we're going to get back on track. So I, I, I listen, broken record. I'm going to pick them every week, but I'm picking the hawks again. I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> well, I don't pick them every week, but I do. I despite everything that's happened, I do think this team does finish with at, at least nine wins. And I actually wouldn't be surprised if they won out there. I mean, you know, four more games, four more first drives, you know, yeah. Uh, at the very least. Um, I do think this game will be a lot more similar to the way the Cowboys game was than the 49ers games. I will say that. I think that the the competition level is is a lot more even on these teams. Um, I you know, I think we both agree the Niners are just really, really good. And so um, I think it'll be more even competition. And um, yeah, I, I think I think we're going to get this one. I think we're going to figure out a way. I am curious the next game will be against the Tennessee Titans and it has been I mean this is like what five of the last six games will have been against like Super Bowl contenders you know going back to the Ravens game uh I wonder what it will feel like and what it it could just feel like whoa this is this is different this is what a normal like NFL schedule is like like oh not everybody not every team is predicted to win the Super Bowl like wait a minute, like, this is different. It would be funny, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but it would be funny if the Seahawks just boat race the last three teams, right? What, it's Arizona, it's the Titans, and who's the other team? The Steelers in the middle. Okay, the Steelers. It would be kind of hilarious if it's one of those, like, you've been training in a weighted jacket, you know, for the last four weeks, and now you take that jacket off, and you're like, oh my, I'm so fast, I'm so strong, Um, which... Theoretically, that's what should happen, right? We should be making big lessons, you know, throughout these tough games. So, I think the Seahawks get nine wins on the year, so winning three out of their last four, even even if they lose this one, I'm going to go just nine wins on the year. Okay, I I think I agree with that, and I'm I'm holding out hope that we we get this one, and and it sets us up for a a photo finish, a a nice a nice way to go into the last three weeks. Uh, We're going to be facing a former Seahawk in this game. Mr. Rashad Penny, very talented, got injured a lot. He's appeared in two games for the Eagles this year. He's played in 18 snaps total. That's a shocker to me, by the way, that he hasn't been active more often. He's earning $1.35 million for the season. So that's $75,000 a snap. Uh... The largest cap hit in the NFL belongs to one Patrick Mahomes, who hmm. plays quarterback for the Chiefs. If Patrick Mahomes took a vacation for the last four weeks of the regular season, uh, he would er- have earned $43,000 a snap so far for the year. Whoa. So that would be so it's a, it's a luxury option uh, for the Eagles there. A they pretty got, penny, if you will. They're playing, paying a pretty penny per capita. Um, Interesting. Well, hey, go Hawks. We're going to beat those dirty birds. Go Hawks.